Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. All I need are some tasty waves, a cool buzz, and I'm fine. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1982 classic high school comedy Fast Times at Ridgemont High from Refugee Films. Distributed by Universal Pictures, it stars Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, Brian Backer, and Phoebe Cates. Directed by Amy Heckerling, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 30 minutes. In 2005, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was selected by the National Film Registry for preservation for its historical, cultural, and aesthetic contributions. This is our second of our Back to Back to School series, where we talk about movies that took place in school. Last week we discussed Heathers, so give it a listen if you haven't already. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Based on the humorous, best-selling novel, Fast Times at Ridgemont High details the individual struggles of teenagers as they deal with independence, success, sexuality, money, maturity, school, and particularly with just making it through the formative years. Fast Times was directed by newcomer Amy Heckerling in what New York Magazine calls an auspicious debut. Fast times at Ridgemont High. That was it? That was wow. it, man. That might go down as our <laughs> short shortest one ever. Oh, I absolutely loved it. This was a particular short and sweet one. Boy, this is going to be fun, Bill Bant. We're back to school once yes. again. Kids going back to school and we figured it's time for us to talk about movies about school. So that was our what's on the box. And as always, Jason, let's move on to earliest memories. What is your earliest memory of Fast Times at Richmond High? All right, Bill Bant, we're getting into the way back machine. We're going all the way back to the year 1982. So I was just a young eight years old, going on nine when this movie came out. So I didn't see this until much later on cable. And that was probably most likely in high school appropriately enough. And I'm not sure I even completely digested it when I was in high school. So this was a movie that had to grow on me over the years. And I think I understood it better or accepted it better or found it even more humorous as the years would go on. Early memory for sure. Mr. Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli. What an iconic performance, an iconic role. Man, I love this guy. I love this character. 
He puts on the surfer stoner affectation. He's got the bagel and the jeans. He's walking into class going, wait a minute, there's no birthday party for me here. Or my old man is a television repairman. He's got this ultimate set of tools. I can fix it. It's just the best. His confrontations and interactions with Mr. Hand, Ray Walston, I mean, just amazing. If, if I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? He is the character you quote. Another early memory, you know, I mean, this movie is greatly about sex. I mean, I remember definitely the awkward sex scene between Mike and Stacy, that's Robert Romanus, and Jennifer Jason Leigh, and just feeling bad for Stacy and feeling bad for Mike, and the whole thing just being weird. Now, of course, we can't talk about Fast Times at Richmond High without talking about the dream sequence. And I'm not talking about Spicoli's surfing exploits dream sequence. I'm talking about Phoebe Cates. I'm talking about the cars. I'm talking about Judge Reinhold. If you know this movie, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, moving on, another early memory. I always liked the VHS cover, speaking of what's on the box, because of the hot girls on the cover. So I remember all seeing this in the... Uh, blockbuster or what have you video store and just going oh those girls are those are cute that's pretty sexy i'm gonna have to check out this movie eventually and yeah getting back to the subject of sex which is unavoidable with this film i do vaguely remember feeling weird about the sexual nature about this film because it was so it was kind of in your face and just at a young age not quite being ready to digest it i would get it a little bit later on and I'm going to get into it a little bit later in my initial thoughts, actually, um, as to my reaction to the nature of it in this film. But yeah, that was an early memory, just going, what is this movie? Is this movie all about sex? What does this all mean? Of course, I, I figured it out. So yeah, I remember just thinking that I thought the movie was kind of funny and kind of raw. And it felt even a bit dated and sort of a slice of life of these high schoolers and such a quotable movie, of course, mainly because of Spicoli, but a movie that got better with age for me as I got older and had a grasp on what the different dynamics of high school were like and what pot was and uh, what trying to date would be like. So this movie definitely became more relatable, and uh, that's something I definitely remember. And that's all I got, Bill Bant. What are your earliest memories of Fast Times? Yeah, Jason, uh, I'm not going to lie. It took me a while until I finally saw this movie. Uh, late 80s or possibly yeah. early 90s. I'm not a fan of stoner movies. I usually don't find them funny. Not saying there aren't some good ones out there, but it is not a go-to comedy genre for me. So when this movie looked like it was about a stoner in high school, this movie was a pass. And also, I'll admit, I wasn't a big fan of Sean Penn and... I think that's just because he constantly got killed in the media for his like bad boy behavior and all that crap with Madonna back in the day, who he was briefly married to. And then you would hear all these stories about his behavior on set. I kind of passed on things he was in. But even though there was movies he was in that I did see, I liked them. I mean, it's, it's something that doesn't bother me now. You hear all these stories about behavior on set and stuff like that. You know, hey, I was a young kid, a little bit impressionable. So that's kind of why this movie was a pass for the longest time. But... The reason I eventually went to see this movie or saw this movie, and it can be summed up in two words, Phoebe Cates. I'm not going to lie. I had to see. I had to see what that scene was. And outside of Gremlins and Drop Dead Fred, which uh, I've never seen, 
I can't really name any movies off the top of my head that she was in, but I know she was very pretty and she had the infamous topless scene. So thank you, Phoebe. And when I finally got to see it on late night cable, I couldn't believe how many actors were in this movie at the time. I mean, I really only knew Sean Penn was in this, but then you have Jennifer Jason Lee, Eric Stoltz, Judge Reinhold, Forrest Whitaker, Jane Trousseau, Taylor Negrin, Anthony Edwards, Nick Cage, all people I'd seen in some of my favorite 80s movies, and so many others I would keep picking up on on further rewatches. I mean, this movie is a who's who of 80s actors. Uh, my perception of this movie was all wrong, and I kicked myself in the ass for not watching this sooner. Like you, I was only nine years old when this came out, and it would have t- totally been over my head, and my parents would have let me see it anyway. But I wish I had seen it earlier when I was old enough, in that high school age. So that's my earliest memories of Fast Times at on a High. Thank you, Phoebe. <laughs> oh, it's an important moment for us young men. Uh, at that time, for sure. And interesting, your commentary on Sean Penn and you v- your view of him, and I completely understand that. However, I've always been a Sean Penn fan myself, and if I had one word to describe him, it would be commitment. The guy just seems committed to everything that he does. He just seems like one passionate guy, and he is definitely an actor I would be a little starstruck by or maybe intimidated by if I saw him in person, just because he just looks so serious. Despite what your opinions may be on his political views or whatnot, he is always part of humanitarian efforts, and he just has that, I don't know, that kind of weathered, leathered look about him that's intimidating to me. I just appreciate his work as an actor. Uh, I always have I don't know, maybe we'll get around to doing like Falcon and the Snowman at some point. That's a great one, but I don't know why that's coming to the front of my mind. Just speaking of 80s Sean Penn, but he's fantastic in this film without question. So I'm just going to stop there if we're ready to get into our initial thoughts, Bill Ben. Yeah, go for it. We're your initial thoughts. So we'll start with our director, Amy Heckerling. This is her directorial debut. Amy is primarily known as a writer-director, known for this, of course. And then she goes on to direct Johnny Dangerously in 84, and she does European Vacation in 85. How about that? I had no idea that she had directed that film. Uh, she did three episodes of Fast Times, the television series in 86. Uh, she both wrote and directed Look Who's Talking in 89, and then she did the sequel Look Who's Talking To in 90. And then, of course, another coming-of-age classic. She writes and directs Clueless in 1995, and then she would work mainly in TV until around 2021 when I saw on IMDb her credits uh, stop there. But So I'm not sure if she's got anything else coming up. Amy Heckerling just has some real bangers there. And moving on to our writer, the one and only Cameron Crowe. I don't know if you'd mentioned this, Bill, but uh, I may have mentioned it in the... Uh, I did, actually, in the What's on the Box segment that this film is based on his book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It is you know, somewhat well-known that he was a young writer in high school himself submitting articles to Rolling Stone, and music would play a huge role in the films he was involved with, as we see here. And here's a few of Cameron Crowe's notables. Say Anything in 1989, then Singles in 92. He has Jerry Maguire in 96, Almost Famous in 2000, and Vanilla Sky in 2001. Cameron Crowe was dating Nancy Wilson at the time of this film's creation and would go on to marry her. They were married from 1986 to 2010. They have a couple of kids together. 
Nancy Wilson, of course, being famous for being one half of the band Heart with her sister Ann Wilson. So yeah, Cameron Crowe, great writer, director. I'm a big fan, big fan of, uh, of his hits. Let's just say that. And going into my other initial thoughts regarding Fast Times at Ridgemont High, we start off with ah, the Ridgemont Mall. Gotta love malls in the 80s. It was just the place to be. Anytime there's like, it makes me think of like how Stranger Things, I think, kind of nailed it too with the the mall scene in the 80s. It, they definitely nail it here. And it was just the place to be where you where you cruise, you stroll around, you walk and talk and you look at the girls and, and uh, you go into the shops and there's just the food court. That's the whole thing. I mean, some of it's the same today, but not quite the scene it was probably in the 80s. Like I said, uh, in this particular film, in the beginning, it's a great way to set up the movie and introduce us to our protagonists. I mentioned some of the stores like Floorsheim you see in the background, or we get the arcade, of course, and you get great shots of classic arcade games such as Space Invaders, Pac-Man. They feature Tempest yes. in the sequence. I'm like, why don't we get more Tempest? I loved that game. I wasn't very good at yeah, it, but I, I thought either. it was cool. I was like, man, don't get enough shout outs for Tempest. So we're walking around the mall and we're introduced to some of our protagonists, our high school kids, some sophomores. Uh, We get Mark Ratner, played by Brian Backer, who works as the ticket taker at the mall theater. He's the assistant to the assistant manager. And we're also introduced to his best friend and smooth talker, Mike Damone, who is uh, making money on the side as a concert ticket scalper. He's selling tickets for 20 bucks for Van Halen. Can you imagine Bill Bant being able to go to see Valent Halen for 20 bucks? Awesome. And he's overcharging. The little kids that come up to him for the tickets are like, but they go for $12.50. You're charging us for 20 bucks. We also meet a very young Stacey Hamilton, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, and her clearly more confident best friend and slightly older friend, Linda Barrett, played by Phoebe Cates. And we learn that Linda's got like a college age boyfriend in Chicago. She, that being Linda, seems to be a bit wiser and more experienced in the ways of dating and sex, and she will serve as Stacy's best friend and mentor. We do see them working at Perry's Pizza in the mall. So just great way to introduce us to our main characters and kind of a little bit of their background, who they are and who they are to each other. We are introduced also to Brad Hamilton, played by Judge Reinhold. Brad is Stacy's older brother. He's a senior and seemingly well-liked popular senior who works at the local hangout called All-American Burger. And of course, we then <laughs> introduced to Jeff Spicoli, man, and uh, his stoner crew as they all come into the All-American Burger and immediately take their shirts off for some reason in order to get comfortable. No shirt, no shoes, no dice. Learn it, know it, live it. It's hilarious. It's fun. Great setup. Man, it is great to see such a young Anthony Edwards, Eric Stoltz, we get some quick shots of a young Nicholas Coppola, or as we know him now, Nicholas Cage. We get introduced to these young actors in this movie, even though it seems Eric Stoltz is really the one who has any lines. And I'm not sure I totally buy him as a stoner in this. That's an initial thought, because it's just like I look at him, it's Eric Stoltz. He just seems more like the guy next door. I don't know. But funny enough, I think he's still good. It's just, and if I was going to say funny enough, he's great as a drug peddler much later on in Pulp Fiction. So he goes on to play the druggie much later on. There was smoking indoors everywhere back then. I don't know why I tend to forget that, but it was the truth. It's in the mall. It's in the theater. It's in the restaurants. Weird to think about that now. Speaking of sex, we get 
a conversation between Stacy and Linda early on here after they get off their shift at Perry's Pizza in the mall. And they're talking about this cute older guy who's 26 and he works at the stereo store and Stacy should try and date him. But Stacy's only 15. Yet Linda is encouraging her to call this older guy and saying, don't worry about it. It's something, you know, you just got to go through. And, and Linda herself mentions she's she had sex when she was 13. And I was like, oh, boy, we're just getting right into it. We're hitting the whole sex subject just full frontal, if you will. And I was like, OK, here's the major and overwhelming initial thought from Captain Obvious here. This movie is a lot about sex. It's obvious. It's clear. It's no ifs, ands and buts about it. Pretty raw and pretty honest. It's pretty awkward. And I'll just give my props right now to Jennifer Jason Leigh. The fact that she handles this content as an actress, she handles it well and she has to bear it all in this movie. It's a little tough watching it, knowing her character is only 15. Lay was only 19 at the time of the filming. But she initially appears innocent and shy, but doesn't then really hesitate that much afterward in making herself available in this film. That's the character I'm talking about. And I think it's done purposefully, as in she wants to get through this initial phase of losing her virginity and becoming experienced. She wants to be like the older girls in school and the older, uh, quote unquote, cool girls in school that dress like Pat Benatar and... She ends up paying the price, and Jennifer Jason Lee is quite convincing in the role. She matures very quickly. She's a mature actress, in my opinion. So I, upon this viewing, here's an initial thought, Bill Bant was a little surprised that the movie was so sexually forward. I just, for whatever reason, hadn't remembered that. I remembered there was a lot of sex in it, but I was just a little bit surprised by it. I didn't have a problem with it necessarily. I don't have it take issue with it. I just didn't remember it, so it kind of took me aback at first. And again, that makes sense. I was really young when I had watched this on repeat. So I'll say this much. Here's another thought. It's a little different maybe with a female director at the helm because you get a bit more female narrative when it comes to the sex in this film. It's not just about dudes, you know, wanting to get laid. It's a bit more about the female perspective and navigating the world of sex. And I appreciated that. Another initial thought. Outside of Sean Penn's performance, Robert Romanus, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. I apologize. But he plays the role of Mike Damon, and he was the standout for me upon this rewatch. He plays that kind of douchey wannabe who wants to be the cool guy and pretends really damn hard to be the suave, like suave, Rico Suave, popular ladies man with the walk. He literally bounces, by the way. And the talk that he almost pulls it off. He tries so hard, he almost pulls it off, but he's clearly full of shit and obviously not wise nor experienced, but preys on the inexperienced, whether it be his best friend, Mark Rat Ratner, or a young Stacey Hamilton, or being a scalper and selling overpriced tickets to young kids. I just think Robert plays this role with some levels. Uh, you see his vulnerability at times, the break in the facade, the insecurity, but don't get me wrong, he's a total dick to Stacey and does her dirty, does her wrong. But somehow, I don't know, I still had some sort of bit of empathy for him, which made me feel like shit. <laughs> I don't know. I'll just say this. He mixes milk with Kahlua. And I'm like, wait, are you trying to make a white Russian, pal? Hey, Mike, you're missing the major ingredient. That would be vodka. He's got the Kahlua, but he's missing the vodka. But I just think that's kind of the point. And I thought that was kind of a smart little thing they did in it. Uh, here's another initial thought. None of the guys know how to kiss in this movie. I thought that was pretty funny, but it shows their inexperience and total awkwardness. I may overuse the word awkward in this because that's just a major initial thought for me. And that's basically a lot of what high school is. High school is an initiation in so many ways, a trial by fire. It's an introduction to wider social scene of cliques and fitting in and growth or lack of growth. 
mixed with puberty and adolescence and sex and popularity and pressure and trends. And it's such a big swing between good days and bad days. And it's just figuring shit out in the hallways and the gyms and the locker rooms and sports and extracurriculars and making the grade and working the summer jobs in between. I thought this movie upon rewatch was fun. It's not always pretty. Some coming of age high school movies are a little bit on the lighter side. Certainly not Heather's, but but uh, this one has a rawness or maybe an honest quality that resonates with me. For me, I was thinking, yeah, this is definitely Dazed and Confused before Dazed and Confused, although that takes place a handful of years earlier in that fiction. This is early 80s, but it definitely has a 70s carryover. So yeah, I like this rewatch at points. I feel like I was watching vignettes of different kids' lives and experiences, which is intended. And I knew the running time was only an hour and a half. So I was kind of like, is there an arc to follow here? But it's really not much about that or as much about that as just uh, the slice of life. And surprisingly, at the end, I felt like I'd been on a journey with these characters. It was weird. Uh, I didn't, it was like, where's this going? And then I was like, oh, here we are. Uh, it works in a kind of funny way. We'll talk about it more a little bit later. And the last thing I'll say is I appreciated the ending. It has a missile command ending. Oh, I always yeah. love that video game. So those are some of my initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? So what I like about this movie is there's kind of three storylines that happen over the course of the school year. And we're really just a fly on the wall watching this all play out. So we have Stacy and she's trying to find the perfect boyfriend and experience sex. You have Spicoli and its constant battles with Mr. Hand, the history teacher. Then you have Brad, Stacy's older brother, and he's just trying to make a living outside of school to enjoy his last year. And that's really it. There's nothing really that deep into it. And, you know, we were talking about you were talking about Jennifer Jason Lee and trying to experience sex. And if that was a movie that was made today or even later, even other movies that kind of touched on this topic, it would be the whole movie it would be her trying to find this boy and have sex with. She has sex like by the end of the first act. With this Ron guy. Yeah, he, she has sex with him almost immediately. That's the, like the first 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. So usually there's always this build up to it and it just gets right into it. And it's just all her experiences dealing with this throughout the year. And then we see how all the other characters play into the storylines like Mark and Damone and Linda. And this movie could have ended with Brad stopping the robber and I would have been OK with it. But they added the little segments telling the future of some of the characters I mean, it's something we've seen in other movies, and I usually do like them. Like, we've seen it in Animal House and Stripes. And I, I always kind of find it funny where they decide where the characters go. But I think in this instance, I don't think we needed it. I don't think we needed to put a bow on their stories. Because life doesn't end when school ends, so neither should their stories. This whole movie is really just seeing a chapter of their high school lives. And that's what I thought was kind of interesting. They don't make a big deal in the movie about what year each of the students are. Like, I was still trying to figure it out. Like, I know Brad's a senior. I think Linda was a senior. But I wasn't really sure what Spicoli and Stacy were because they were in the same class. But I knew they were underclassmen. But it seemed like Spicoli, it was last, his last year. But I didn't really care. I was just kind of curious. Right. But it wasn't, to me, that big of a deal. And I think I liked that for this movie, it was really just about the here and now. The day-to-day. There was no big party they had to get to at some point in this movie. There was no big exam they needed to study for. There was no trying to find that perfect prom date. It was all that stuff in between that they focused on, which I enjoyed. Stuff that we usually don't see in these type of movies. Props to the actors in this film and the casting. I mean, to have this many young actors in this film, and they all do an amazing job. 
And that's what really helps with this too. We know they're all older than typical high school people, but they are so amazing in this. It makes the movie work. You're just so invested in everyone. Even though some of them just have little parts in this film, I enjoyed everybody's segments. Everybody had a time to shine a little bit on screen. And that was really great. And the amazing thing also about this movie, there's really no antagonist. Yeah, Timon's kind of does some dickish things, but he's not really a bad person. And Linda, I think she's a pathological liar, but she does stick up for Stacy at that one point when she gets hurt. So you don't have like the bullies that they're going against or, you know, like in Heather's, like Heather's with the bad person that they're focusing on. And then they're killing off people that are detriments to the school. But we don't really have that here. We're just focusing on what they're doing, just trying to get through the day to day to high school. I think every time I watch this movie, I focus on a different character just to see what their journey was. And I think really watching for this one, the one that really stood out the most this time was Jennifer Jason Lee's storyline. And we'll get into that a little bit more. And just even watching the movie, like some of these characters do evolve throughout the course. Some of them stay the same, but that's okay. We really don't have that many typecast characters in this. Yes, John Penn, Spicoli, the stoner, and Forrest Whitaker as Charles Jefferson, your jock. But everyone else just seems like day-to-day students. You're, you're normal students. They're not pigeonholed in, into something else. The soundtrack. Oh, my God. I can't say enough about the soundtrack. I can't believe Absolutely. I don't even own the soundtrack. I need to go right. get it. I mean, you, the Go-Go, Sammy Hagar, Tom Petty, Jackson Brown, Oingo Boingo, The Cars, Led Zeppelin. Just great music throughout the movie. It is a character all to itself. This movie is such a great time capsule of the early 80s. I mean, we usually get, I usually think there's like a great high school movie that comes out every decade. And we got lucky in the 80s because you have this and you pair it with The Breakfast Club. And I know when we did The Breakfast Club episode, I kind of bashed it just because I felt like it was dated. But if I were to say these are the two movies you should watch to learn about 80s high school life. Now, now, granted, I always make fun of myself of the fact that I went to an all boys high school. So I'm not really sure what actual high school life is. But if I were to tell someone, these are the two movies you need to watch. It would be this and The Breakfast Club, because I think these are the two that really show what high school life was like in the early 80s. And I really wish they would do a movie similar to that, not saying remake Fast Times at Richmond High, but if they could make a movie like that just to show what high school is now, because so much has changed, you know, just you know, with technology and the way people interact and all that stuff. I would love to see what high school life like today watching this, just how much different it is. They don't really hang out at the, the malls like they do now. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. But I'd like to know where they hang out, how they... Is everything through a phone? How much interaction do students really have with one another? That would be interesting to me. You know, I'm I'm really looking forward to that next great high school movie. Like Clueless, Mean Girls. Every time, I'm always excited when those come out that really show the true life of high school. Not the true life, but an exaggerated version of, of what is kind of truthful is out there. And this one is just great. I can't believe this movie was only 90 minutes long. I mean, I could have seen another 45 minutes of it. I mean, if they made it today, it would probably be over two hours. Every movie's over two hours now. Overall, great movie. And that's my initial thoughts. Outstanding, man. Uh, I love that, Bill. Great commentary. And obviously, you really enjoyed this rewatch and you love this movie. And uh, understandably, it's this movie's fun. Overall, it's very entertaining. And it is just like the title. It's Fast Times. It blows by. I mean, it just cruises. It's only an hour and a half. So... Regarding the direction that this film takes with 
handling three different storylines, mainly with Stacey Hamilton. You have Mike DeMond and then, you know, Brad Hamilton. So those are kind of the main storylines, if you will. Uh, you can throw Mark in there too, Mike's best friend. Uh, you could throw Linda in there as well, but there's really like the three main storylines. And you could make an argument, if I were to play devil's advocate here, there that it does lack a little bit of focus, should it be just one storyline. But I think you kind of uh, refuted that a little bit, Bill Bant, in your breakdown of it. So I kind of, I really appreciate your point of view. And I agree with you that the, the film works in the way that we're just seeing a few different stories and experiences and kind of experiencing it with these characters as if we're a fly on the wall. And I definitely appreciate that because we definitely get other films later on that follow one character through a high school experience and the focus is on them solely and the other characters are a little bit more peripheral and come in as comic relief, et cetera. And uh, I was going to comment on this later, I think in my additional thoughts, but since you had kind of made your commentary, I'm, I'm bringing it up now. Would it have been better had it been focused solely on Stacy or solely on, let's say, a Mike DeMond or Brad's experience as a senior trying to establish his freedom and independence. But man, you, you know, it just made me think of how you said what life was like in high school in the 80s. And one being that it just, I mean, high school is a gauntlet. I mean, it's just a gauntlet. You're just going through so many different things and having to deal with so many different things before you get to college. I mean, high school, those are definitely formative years but you're just trying to get your bearings. You're just trying to get your feet underneath you. It's tough versus getting into college and you finally start settling down and figuring out, oh, okay, I'm kind of getting a sense of a direction or passion and getting some friends, surrounding myself with friends that I choose versus friends kind of that I've been thrown together with because of this was the school I had to go to because this is where I live. You know, it's in my district or whatnot. It was a completely different experience in the 80s. It's funny when you talk about the progress of technology, et cetera, and how that changes the dynamic, the social scene, et cetera, because the malls were the thing then. And I'll go to the malls now and it's, you'll still see people congregate there. No question, especially younger people. But uh, upon my delivering the uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I almost took a photo of this. I went into a local store to pick up some food and there was a group of girls, young girls, probably high school age four of them sitting around a table with their food and each one of them was staring at their phone. No conversation at all. All four of them were just looking at their phones. That was it. That's all they were doing. I walked into the store. I was like, oh man, that's how it is today. Okay. I walked out. They were still staring at their phones. Not a word spoken to the other person across the table. Uh, and that's just how it is. That's, it's a different type of socialization. It's a mixture. So um, a lot of, it just, this movie, yeah, it, it's a throwback. It's an important movie because I think it definitely is one of the first of its kind in the depiction of coming of age in high school, especially in the 80s. So it really is a hell of a way to kick things off. So we can keep it moving. What's next, Bill Bant? Yeah, we can move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of your favorite scenes and moments from Fast Times at Ridgemont High? All right. Where shall we start? Well, you know what? I'm going to start right off. I'm going to just start off playing the hits. And this is the biggest hit, Bill Banch, and you're going to help me, I'm sure. Let's get straight to it. Let's talk about the iconic Phoebe Cates slash Linda Barrett pool scene. Heck yeah. So a little bit of setup at this point. We know that I've already mentioned our protagonists and who they are. And this scene takes place at Stacy and Brad Hamilton's house. 
And at this point, we know that Stacy and Linda are best friends and they've been working at Perry's Pizza and Stacy is trying to navigate the dating and sex scene with the help of Linda's advice. And Stacy and Linda are at Stacy's house in the backyard, uh, sunbathing by the pool. And who decides to make an impromptu visit? Well, that would be Mike Damone and Mark Rat Ratner, best friends. They show up because Mark has a crush on Stacy, and they've gone out at this point and had a little bit of a kissy-kissy session, but Mark kind of backed out and got a little bit of cold feet. So they've been on a date. Mike is trying to encourage him to continue their interaction, so they, he convinces Mark to go over to Stacy's house. And now they show up. Uh, with their suits on and bring their towels and they walk up to the gate to the backyard and they poke their heads over and the girls are out back and they're like, yeah, sure, come on in. So they decide to go for a little dip and we've got Mark and Mike goofing off in the pool and Stacy decides to join them and it's all fun and laughs. And we have Linda then, uh, she's taking her time getting into the pool. So she decides to just go take a seat on the diving board And then who shows up but Brad? Brad's getting home from work, and Brad's not feeling too good these days because at this point in the film, he's working at Captain Hook Fish and Chips, (laughs) which is hilarious because he's forced to wear a pirate uniform, which is amazing. And he's got to wear the full regalia, like the whole getup, and he's got the regalia, he's got the pirate hat on. So he walks in through the back gate into the backyard and is talking to Stacy, his younger sister, who's in the pool with the guys like his I think he says something to the effect of his mom and dad know you have guests or that knows that you have people over or whatnot. But the parents, of course, 80s movie, the parents are out of town. So that's how it goes, right? So he's in his uniform feeling down and he walks inside and he's like, yeah, just keep it down because I am I got work to do. So he goes inside. But before he goes outside, it's great because Judge Reinhold uh, is great in this. I, I always love him, a.k.a. Rosewood. Uh, Judge Reinhold Uh, in the pirate uniform, looks across the pool to see the beautiful Phoebe Cates, Linda Barrett, in her red bikini sitting on the diving board and says hi to her, and she says hi back. And it's so subtle, but Judge Reinhold gives her this quick look like he's just kind of capturing an image with his eyes to store in his mind, and he retreats indoors. And then it begins. It's the dream sequence or one might call the masturbation sequence. But it's great. It's hilarious. It's sexy. It's embarrassing. And it begins with the cars. Moving in stereo. What a great tune. And we have Linda in her bikini diving into the pool. She's coming out in slow motion and she's got the wet hair pulled back and she looks gorgeous. I mean, she's a beautiful woman. And We now know, because it's intercut with the slow motion sequence of Linda getting out of the pool, and we see Brad in the bathroom inside, and you know it's not graphic in nature, but it's very clear that he's masturbating in the bathroom to this fantasy of Linda getting out of the pool. She gets out of the pool, we see, and she says, hi, Brad, you know how cute I always thought you were. And it's great because she then in slow motion walks toward him takes off her bikini top. So we get 80s boobs. She approaches Brad and in Brad's fantasy, in his own fantasy, he's wearing like this suit and he looks like a stud, which is really funny, quite the opposite of his pirate uniform. And they begin kissing and it's hot. It's great. The music's great. 
And it's just so awkward because we see Brad masturbating in the bathroom. And then, of course, Linda in real time outside of the fantasy getting out of the pool. She's gotten water in her ear and she needs a Q-tip to clean it out. And she goes inside and walks right into the bathroom mid-masturbation by Brad. And he's completely embarrassed. And it takes like a good couple of seconds. I forgot how long it takes for him to realize that she's walked in on him. And she's immediately grossed out and runs out. And then he turns around is in just like shock and says the great line, doesn't anybody fucking knock anymore? And it's just the worst. It's the most memorable scene because Phoebe Cates is so beautiful in the scene and it's very sexy and the music's great. But as a young man seeing this, it's the worst possible scenario. It's the worst case scenario to have a girl that attractive that you may have a serious crush on walk in on you under those particular circumstances because there's no coming back from that. Now she's got that image in her head and you think she's got that image in her head every time she's going to see you and it's going to be impossible even to look her in the eye after that. So it's a famous sequence, an iconic sequence. It's well-performed by Judge Reinhold in particular. Props to him for uh, performing that particular sequence. And I mean, Phoebe Cates forever memorialized because of that scene. I mean, she's gorgeous. What else can you say? Yeah, it's the most infamous scene of the movie. And I mean, maybe see Phoebe Cates topless in it five seconds. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see Jennifer Jason Lee topless longer in the movie than Phoebe, but everybody remembers this scene. Right. Yeah, it's the presentation. There's really nothing I can add that you already explained. It is an awesome shot of her coming when she comes out of the pool and they have like the, the sprinkler in the background, the, all the mist. <laughs> it's like mist falling on her. It's, like, it's a total fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great. great shot. And then the fact that he comes out wearing the suit is hilarious instead of wearing that stupid pirate gear. And the thing is, too, is Brad's working at this horrible job now because he got fired from his All-American Burger. And he's just recently lost his girlfriend, too. So it's a kind of a right. double whammy. And it's kind of my sister's best friends with one of the hottest girls in school. Because he's in the bathroom and he opens the window to get another look at her while she's sitting on the edge of the... Snapshot. Yeah, on the, on the edge of the diving board and just goes at it. Yeah, that's got to be the most embarrassing thing in the world. Yeah, definitely a sign of the times, too. It's funny you mentioned that he opens the window. That's a great call because just look, as young men at that time, what did we have? We had Playboy and Hustler and, and such and Sports Illustrated, magazines and such. Yeah, Sports Illustrated. But yeah, the reason I think why this scene in particular, it's, it's funny you do mention the fact that there's uh, a lot more other nudity featuring you know Stacy in this film, but this is the memorable scene because of the, the way it's presented in a, a music video fashion, speaking of... MTV in the early 80s, et cetera. But it's definitely, it's a well-presented fantasy where we it's so relatable as an 80s guy, you know, a young boy in the 80s just going, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's why forever you'll hear guys our age go when they talk about the, the young, beautiful girls from 80s movies. Phoebe Cates is always probably, definitely somewhere up there in the top 10. Yeah. Probably top five. Just for that scene alone. Right. That's it. All right. Good one. Um, yeah, definitely one we had to discuss. So for me, this is a moment. Like I said, every time I watch this movie, I, I kind of catch something new and I try to focus on another character. And I said Jennifer Jason Lee was one. And another one was Robert Romanus, Romanus, whatever it is, who plays. Rom Romulus. <laughs> Romulus. Rom Romanus. Romanus. Romania. 
you're watching this movie, I'm like, why did he not do more stuff? I don't know. He's, he's really good. In totally. This. Totally. So he plays Mike Damone, and he's friends with Mark Ratner. And Damone kind of does some shitty things in this movie. And he gives some really bad advice. But there is one thing that he talks about with Mark, which I was like, you know what? I wish someone had told this to me back in high school because I think this would have really helped me. So they're at it's either at Mark or Mike's house. And Mark is I have a question about this later on. So I'm glad you're bringing it up. Keep going. So Mark tells Mike he's met the girl of his dreams. And that's Stacy. Stacy's in Mark's biology class. He's fallen in love. And Mark's asking Damone for some advice. And, of course, Damone starts by kind of teasing Mark because last year he fell in love with the girl of his dreams and she worked at a photo mat and he spent $40 on film for a camera he never had. So he's like, all right, we've heard this crap before, Mark, but you got to do something. You can't just be Mr. Shy Guy. And this is the advice that he says that I was like, oh, man, this is this is actually pretty good advice. He goes, uh, I'm going to quote it. I mean... Don't just walk in. You move across the room and you don't talk to her. Use your face. You use your body. You use everything. That's what I do. I mean, I just send out this vibe and I have personally found that women do respond. I mean, something happens. And then Mark comes back with, well, naturally something happens. I mean, you put out the vibe to 30 million chicks. Something is going to happen. And Mike comes back with, that's the idea, rat. That's the attitude. And Mark's like, the attitude? Yeah, the attitude dictates that you don't care whether she comes, stays, lays, or prays. I mean, whatever happens, your toes are still tapping. And when you got that, you have the attitude. You know what? That's actually kind of right. He's basically just saying, just be confident in yourself. And women find that confidence attractive. Like, hopefully you're not a dick with this confidence, but just have confidence. And if he has confidence, everything else will work itself out. It'll give him the courage to talk to Stacy. Because if if you feel good about yourself, then you feel good about presenting yourself to others. Just let it go. You know, if the girl says no, she says no. Life moves on. It's okay. And that's kind of what Damone is saying to Rat. If it doesn't work with her, it doesn't work with her. It's okay. You'll feel better about yourself that you'll feel confident like, hey, I was at least able to talk to her and I got turned down. I got turned down. They might say yes. And if they say yes, that's great. And then you see where it goes from there. So I thought that was kind of cool advice. And it was something I never really listened to before. I think we always focus more on Damone's five-step plan. Sure. But I was like, this is actually the better advice. This is the advice I would actually take. You just got to believe in yourself first. If you believe in yourself first, everything else will take care of itself. I really enjoyed listening to it. Well stated, well presented. I appreciate that a lot. I'm glad you brought this up. I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I was tempted to choose this as well. So I'm glad you you broke it down for us. And this is where, again, I think Robert Ramanis, his performance is probably a bit underrated in this film. And Agreed. As he's presenting this to Mark, saying this is how you do it, He literally embodies it as he's explaining it. So there's a physicality to it, which is great, because I mentioned he's bouncing as he's walking. He's doing kind of like the Travolta strut a little bit. And instead of saying, you don't walk, you move, as in you're supposed to glide across the room and you have an, an air of confidence about you, as you said. And it is great. And it's fun because you see a lot in these movies, too. And I think this is probably somewhat real. In my experience, I think it was. 
when you get a pairing of best friends or at least good friends where one tends to be the confident one and, and the more outgoing and maybe more aggressive one versus the other one who is a little bit more of an introvert, shy, and doesn't know how to talk to girls. That's just, as I remember it, that's how it is. So you're just, you're looking for advice. You're looking for um, an example. And how do you do it? How do you do it? And it's funny because I've known guys and I'm always confused. I'm like, man, that guy, I can see right through him. He's so full of shit. How does he get these girls? How does he do it? He's, I mean, he's handsome, but he's not that great looking. It's not doing like, what is it? And for a lot of guys, the approach is the numbers game, right or wrong, whatever you believe, that's how it works for them. It's like, well, yeah, you approach, you keep going. You just keep going. Doesn't matter if she comes, stays, prays. Isn't it? Doesn't he say something to that effect? Yes. I may be paraphrasing, but you got to keep talking. You just got to get up and uh, uh, make a move. So I appreciate it. Thanks for, for bringing that one up. Yeah, I'm not even saying it has to be about meeting the opposite sex. It's just having confidence in yourself overall. Right. That's what you want. When you walk into a room, don't be afraid to look people in the eye and say hello or make your way through. Don't go in and, and run into a corner, which is something that Mark would do. You know, it's just like, hey, mm -hmm. just be yourself. It's fine. You know, people are going to like you for who you are and not everybody's going to like you. And that's fine, too. That's just the way it is. But just be assured of yourself. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Regardless of who you are, just be yourself, but be confident. Take some ownership of who you are because you can look at it. Mark's looking at him in a little bit of a judgmental way because Mark comes off as kind of the more book smart kid and he sees through Mike's facade a little bit and he's like, I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to take this approach, but if it works, you know, and I think Mike's also saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of showmanship. You know, <laughs> you can put on a little bit of a of a show, you know, present yourself in a certain way. There's just to have a little bit of style in your approach, but there's just different ways of doing things. But if uh, you have any chance at all, you got to you got to put yourself out there. Yeah. All right. What do you got next? So my next one is Spicoli has pizza delivered to history class. <laughs> oh, Ray Walston. He's great, man. Is Mr. Hand, our history teacher. What a great name for a history teacher, Mr. Hand. It has kind of an authoritative feel. We start this scene because we've already been introduced to Mr. Hand in the film and we know he is a bit of a disciplinarian and doesn't have much tolerance for anyone being truant. No truancy is allowed, etc. And he's a little bit more strict. So We've seen a couple scenes in history class, but at this point, class is already mid-session. Mr. Hand is talking about how Spain owned Cuba in 1898. When he sees Jeff Spicoli just staring at him, sitting in the front row with a big smile on his face. And man, I'm just laughing because Spicoli doesn't even say anything. It's just Sean Penn with his kind of long, dirty, blonde surfer hair, just looking at him with this stupid smile on his face as if he knows he's got something up his sleeve, but he's just playing cool and innocent. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Mr. Hand hears a knock at the door, at the classroom door. And Mr. Hand goes, who is it? And you got this guy in a red shirt standing outside going, it's Mr. Pizza Guy. Mr. Hand's like, Ag again? Mr. Pizza Guy, sir. So Mr. Hand opens the door a pizza delivery guy comes in holding a pizza and says, who ordered the double cheese and sausage right here, dude. And it's Spicoli <laughs> ordered a pizza in the middle of history class. And the guy delivers the pizza to Spicoli, uh, Spicoli and Mr. Hand says, am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? And Spicoli says, learning about Cuba and having some food. 
<laughs> just it's amazing. Mr. Hand then says, Mr. Scully, you're on dangerous ground here. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. And this is one of my favorite lines. This is one that I just remember, and I mentioned it in earliest memories. And Spicoli responds with, I've been thinking about this, Mr. Hand. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Certainly, there's nothing wrong with a little feast on our time. (laughs) And Mr. Hand, sorry, I shouldn't be laughing at my own thoughts or readings here, but it's a really amusing scene that just gets me right there in the funny bone. And Mr. Hand says, you're absolutely right, Mr. Spicoli. It's our time, yours, mine, and everyone else's in this room, but it's my class. And he calls up a couple of students and says, Mr. Spicoli has been kind enough to bring us a snack. Be my guest. Help yourselves. Get a good one. And all the students start coming up and grabbing slices of the pizza that Spicoli had delivered to him, that Spicoli had paid for. And now everybody's dining out on his dime and his pizza. And the best part is the very end because Mr. Hand is helping himself to a slice of pizza. And it's just all about the look on Spicoli's face as he's watching Mr. Hand eat it. I laugh out loud every time. I watch it a couple times, you know, once to watch it, to digest it, once to take notes. And I laughed both times out loud. He looks so sad. Spicoli, you just, his eyes, he's got like these puppy dog eyes just watching his pizza being devoured. And he's like, no, he's so brokenhearted. It's just good fun. I love the scene. It's got some great lines, great actors. That's it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. The Spicoli, Mr. Hand back and forth throughout the movie is just great. Because in that first scene where we meet Mr. Hand, one of the things he says, no food in my class. Because a kid, I think, was trying to open a Butterfinger and he literally rips out the kid's hand and then puts it in his own pocket. Now you have Spicoli literally having a pizza delivered to his class. It's just funny. And yeah, that look he gives when everyone's eating his pizza you almost feel sorry for him. And I think that's what I liked about the Mr. Hans Spicoli dynamic is you're almost rooting for both of them and you just love the back and forth. And I think that's why, and I'll get into my next favorite scene. It is the Spicoli Mr. Hans scene. And it is when Mr. Hand actually goes to Spicoli's house. Sure. Which I love. So it's the night of the prom. Spicoli's getting ready and Mr. Hand shows up. And says to Spicoli, according to my calculations, you owe me about eight hours. And I'm I'm being kind on my estimate. And he's basically going to teach him everything that Spicoli missed out because he's always late for class. He's always disrupting the class. So he gives him an impromptu history lesson there before he can go to the prom. And after a couple hours, Mr. Hand's like, all right, I think um, we're evened out. And Spicoli's actually kind of cool about it at the end because he says, you know, hey, Mr. Han, do you always have a student like me every year? And Mr. Han makes a joke. Well, maybe you'll find out, meaning that he might flunk. And Spicoli's like, oh, no, there's no way I'm going to flunk. I'm going to pass your class. And he's like, yeah, you might pass by the skin of your teeth. And then they shake hands and Mr. Han leaves. I just thought it was really funny. He's like, I wonder if this is the first time that Mr. Hand has done this, or maybe he's done this before. And you see that Spicoli actually picks up the information because he does regurgitate what he has learned that day. So it's not like he's a, a moron. He's just into his own lifestyle, which is tasty waves. But he could actually be a good student if he applied himself. And that's what I kind of get out of it. So I, I really see a respect between the two of them at the end of the scene. And even doing some research when Mr. Hand is based on a character that Cameron Crowe wrote in the book, 
the students, even though the Mr. Hand character was a disciplinarian, the students actually took to him, to the teacher. They liked that he was like that. And I think it is portrayed in the movie between Mr. Hand and Spicoli. So that's why I really enjoyed about it. I just like how it all culminated at the end. Aloha, Mr. Hand. That's great. You know, and, and I love that line because you do see the respect that they have for each other, or a little bit at least, enough to get by. You're right. Great culmination of that relationship. There is a little bit of an arc there, which I appreciate, of course, because it's a, de- a relationship then that kind of develops or has developed throughout the movie. And when he says aloha, Mr. Hand at the end, it is a callback to Mr. Hand saying aloha in the beginning of the movie. So that's nice. But yeah, totally agree. I'm glad you commented on the fact that Spicoli retains some of the information that he learns from Mr. Hand in this session when he comes over to his house, because it's smart from a writing standpoint, it's smart from a directorial standpoint, not to make Spicoli a moron. He's just a stoner kid, a surfer kid that has or wants to have a lot of fun, but he doesn't have to be an idiot. He's just stoned. That's all, you know, and uh, he has a certain attitude and whatnot. And then you have the complete polar opposite in Mr. Hand. It's not the performances are great. Ray Walston's great as Mr. Hand. He's really funny. He's really funny. And to see that he kind of gets his one up on Spicoli in this and you feel it's earned like he earns that he deserves that. And I would imagine there's teachers all over the world that watch that scene and go, hell yeah, way to be Mr. Hand. Don't let the kids own you or get one up over on you. It's time that the teachers get their due respect. And he goes over to Spicoli's house and demands it and earns it and uh, I think gets it. So it's it's nice and it's funny, especially when he first shows up. <laughs> he just walks right into Spicoli's bedroom. Can you imagine that? Like I put myself in Spicoli's shoes, like your teacher coming over to your house and sitting down with you in your bedroom to give you a personal lesson. It would be a little intimidating and a little bit awkward, but it makes for good comedy. So good scene, man. Good scene. What else do you got? Yeah, I'm going to go back to uh, Mike Damone, an appreciation for Robert Romanus's performances, uh, performance, and I'm just calling this one uh, Mike Has a Bad Day. This is towards the end of the film, and word has gotten out that Mike has done Stacy dirty because he slept with her. It was a very brief encounter. Poor Mike. Just didn't last very long, but he lasted long enough to get her pregnant. Before this, we understand that Stacy's decided to have an abortion, and she's going to go to the local clinic to have that taken care of. And she approaches Mike and says, I'm pregnant. He's a little taken aback, of course. But then she explains, well, I'm going to have the abortion. I'll go to the clinic. It's going to cost 150 bucks. I want you to pay half, and I want you to give me a ride. And he agrees to both. But, I mean, a little credit to Mike. That evening, he tries to get the money together, at least 75 bucks for, from people that owe him money for the scalped concert tickets. He sold them, but he can't get the money together. He has failed. And so the next morning or next day when he's supposed to pick up Stacy to take her to the clinic, he's a no-show. So not cool at all. But Brad, her older brother, Judge Reinhold, has hopped into the, uh, sorry, what does he call it? The cruise vessel? Was it? The, uh, oh, yeah, I can't remember what he calls his it. car? I have it in my notes here later on. He hops into his classic car. He's about to pull out. And Stacy hitches a ride with him and says, uh, I'm, I'm going bowling with friends. She's obviously not going to tell him that she's going to the clinic to have an abortion. So he drives her to the bowling alley. She gets out. And when she thinks he's left and far enough away, she turns and crosses the street to go to the clinic. But Brad, driving off, 
sees her in the rear view mirror mirror and sees that she's not going to the bowling alley. So he turns the car around and a cut to after that, she's had the abortion and basically the word gets out. So it is known that Mike did her dirty and he comes out of what seems like an apartment complex in the morning. And this is a question I have. I don't know where Mike lives because we are led to believe he lives at home still. He's a high school student, but he seems to be coming out of an apartment at this point in the morning. And he comes down to his car in the parking lot and spray painted on the side in large capital letters, it reads prick. And then he goes to school and on his locker is spray painted little prick. Now cut to gym class or after gym class and they're in the locker room. And this is where Mark, his best friend, confronts him. And they're just standing, well, Mike's standing there in a towel and Mark's fully clothed and and just comes right at him saying, hey, Mike, tell me what went on between you and Stacy. And paraphrasing, Mike's like, well, yeah, I know we were out messing around and something happened. And Mark's like, what do you mean something happened? And he's like, look, I never even talked to her again, man. Rat, if you ask me, she's a very aggressive girl. Mike starts putting it on Stacy as if it was her fault that it happened even though not only did Mike do Stacy dirty, but he betrayed his best friend who really liked her and was trying to date her, even though they hadn't been on a date in some time. Mark still has feelings for Stacy, and Mike totally betrayed him. And Mark really lets him have it. And he's like, I always stick up for you. You know, they always say, Damone, that loudmouth, and they say it a lot. And I say, no, you just don't know, Damone. When they call you an idiot, I say, Damone's not an idiot. Well, you know something, maybe... Maybe they know you pretty good. Maybe I'm just starting to find out. I just want to focus on Mike here because in the scene, he gets defensive. He's trying to put it on Stacy and he says some really mean things. But there's one moment when Mark says to him, there's a lot of girls out there and you have to mess around with Stacy. I mean, what do you have to prove anyway? Which is, it's hard hearing that from Mark. And then Mike just responds with, I'm sorry. And it's that delivery. I'm not doing it justice, but that's Robert Romanus's delivery as an actor. When he says, I'm sorry, we're like, wow, that was heartfelt. This guy actually, he doesn't have bad intentions. He's just kind of a stupid high school kid, you know, with hormones and trying to be something he's not. And he is full of shit. And he knows that he's let his friend down and he's betrayed him. And it's a really honest moment. I really appreciate Robert's performance as Mike Damone in this scene in particular because he's playing a lot of different levels and he has, you know, he's being attacked from by his friend and he's getting defensive, but then he's vulnerable and then he's apologetic. And then he goes right at him at the end and says, you know, get lost. And then they almost break out into a fight. They almost get into a fight. And at the end of the scene, when Mark storms off and the gym teacher has broken it up, you just are left with Mike in his towel and he just says like exasperated, just says, I woke up in a great mood. I don't know what the hell happened. And it's like, he's that ignorant. Like he just doesn't understand the damage he's done, but it's just really well played. He's kind of a sensitive guy. As you find out, he's just really flawed. So that's my uh, last favorite scene, just to put a emphasis and to feature Robert Romanus's performance. Yeah. I think you and I agree that Damone is one of the, the better characters in this movie. Yeah, he definitely fucks up major in this with moving in on his best friend's girl, even though they're not in a relationship, but knowing that 
his best friend has a thing for her. And he even tells Stacy that. And Stacy's like, well, I think I like you. But he still acts on it anyway, knowing if Mark finds out, he's going to be crushed. And then backing out on paying his half of the abortion and then not even giving her a ride. You kind of come to really despise him at that point. But then for some reason, he does come around by the end of the movie, makes peace with Mark. And yeah, he still never makes up what happened with Stacy, but he somewhat redeems himself by the end. One of the more interesting characters in this movie who definitely deserves props, who's just not given enough credit for uh, for that character or even the actor of how he portrayed it. Right. Well said, man. Do you have another favorite scene? Yeah, it is Brad being the good older brother. And you kind of touched on this a little bit. That's so funny. I was going to, ha- I was like, oh, I'll just bring that up in my additional thoughts because that I was leading into it mistakenly because I had that as another favorite scene. So I- I'm please go for it. Okay. So Dave cement this Stacy and Damone have sex and Damone, unfortunately, what did they say? Two pump chump, unfortunately. And, <laughs> and Stacy gets pregnant and she tells Damone about it and, She's scheduled the abortion and she needs the ride and needs half the money. And Timon says he'll take care of it. But unfortunately, he does not. And Stacy's kind of desperate and sees that Brad's leaving for the day and she asks for a ride to the bowling alley, which she just mentioned. So Brad drops her off at the bowling alley. And as she leaves the car to pretend she's going in, she turns around right away to go across the street to the abortion clinic. And Brad just happens to catch this on the rearview mirror and turns around and is like, Where's my sister going and realizes right away, oh shit. So Stacy has the abortion and the nurse says to her, I can't release you unless you have a ride. And Stacy lies to the nurse saying, oh, you know what? I told my boyfriend to wait downstairs. And the nurse is like, okay, you, you can leave. And while Stacy's leaving, there we see in the parking lot, basically leaning against his car is Brad. And Stacy comes up and says, what are you doing here? And Brad's like, well, you're not into bowling. So I figured something was up. And he asks Stacy what happened. And Stacy doesn't want to say anything or, or tell him who did it. And Brad respects that. He's like, you know what? It'll be your secret. And lets it go and says, all right, are you hungry? Let's go get something to eat. I really respected that because normally you would think the older brother being so protective, he would yell at her, admonish her. He'd want to know who did that to his sister and then drive immediately to school and beat the shit out of that person or do something to that person. But he respects his sister enough to understand that the fact that she's gone through all this on her own, that he needs to trust her. And then maybe, maybe someday she will tell him what happened and he will keep this to himself. That's a hard thing to do, but I respected it. I mean, he can't change anything. Your sister got pregnant. She she got the abortion. Even if he finds out who it is and beats the shit out of him, that's not going to change anything. But I I just thought he played the good brother role in that moment. I thought it really worked. You know, part of me kind of wishing that he figured out who it was, but at the same time, would she really tell in that moment? And I think, too, because he's going through a lot of stuff himself, but not to the degree now of what his sister has just gone through. So I think that kind of puts stuff in perspective also. And I think that's what really helps with that scene. Really glad you brought this one up. As I said, I had it written down, too, and I I skipped past it. I almost went right into it because I had it 
in a certain order in my notes, but then I was like, oh, I need to focus on Robert Romanus as Mike Damone because that's what I've kind of been emphasizing. And this particular scene between Judge Reinhold and Jennifer Jason Lee is brief, but well-performed. It's bittersweet. Totally agree with all of your sentiments. And it's really nice to have such an establishing moment, an establishing relationship moment. Because I completely believe that they're brothers, sister Humberson, and he handles it so carefully and sensitively. Because you're right, if he went on, you know, found out it was Mike Damone, wouldn't beat the crap out of him, doesn't change anything. But he realizes that it's not, and I think this is smart writing and a smart approach, is that it's not his problem. It's not his situation. He has to be respectful of her and what she's going through, her privacy and... You can just be supportive. It's not about him. Right. It's not about him. He. It's about her and the fact that he's in this. Just in a hand, like you said, a few a few lines. Okay, it'll just be your secret. This is something that is yours. That you and if and if she wanted to do something or handle it differently, just allow her to come to him. Allow her to ask for his help if she wants it. But he's going to give her her space and not betray her privacy in any way. Not make it a whole scene. Yeah, and sometimes for me, it's those really kind of throwaway lines. Like I mentioned when Mike Damone says, I'm sorry, in the locker room to Mark. And in this particular, you nailed it, man. When he's when they're getting in the car and he's like, all right, come on, you hungry? And it's just Judge Reinhold's delivery of that. You hungry? It's kind of like, as a brother, like, look, I'll treat you to lunch. Let's get some, get you some food or some comfort food in this moment. Maybe that'll help ease this situation a little bit. And that's what you do as a caretaker in that moment. You don't have to get into the the nitty gritty of it and try to play therapist or try to play savior. It's just, let's go get some food. You hungry? Nice stuff. Very subtle. Really nice. Thanks for bringing up that scene. Good stuff. Time to move on to Swiss cheese and complaints department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have windshield holes. Yes, it doesn't have those windshield <laughs> holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, I just came up with windshield holes really just right on like the last second there because I was thinking of what Spicoli ends up doing to, is it Charles Jefferson's car? Because he just smashes the hell out of it. And I may get to that and a little bit of a, a complaint, a nitpicky complaint. But for Swiss cheese or whole, I, it's not even a whole. I'm just going to bring up the fact, this idea of consequences. And, you know, I, I was going to bring this up in initial thoughts, because if I had an issue, maybe it was the lack of consequences in this film, just because when you're talking about, and we were just talking about in favorite scenes, is the subject of, you know, abortion I'd almost forgotten that that happened in this film for some reason, and I don't know if I blocked it out, but that's obviously a very serious issue, and it's deftly handled in that scene between Reinhold and Jennifer Jason Leigh, but otherwise, then after that, it's not much approached, or that subject is not broached. Not that it has to be, but you already kind of brought it up, like it's a major plot point here in the movie, and so there's that, and it's kind of like, I don't know if... Mike really gets his company like does he ends up in a good place in the at the end of the movie because he makes good with his best friend Mark at the last dance at the school dance and it's like all's well with the world and you have 
Stacy having a conversation with Linda, who is, you know, brokenhearted over her long distance relationship, falling apart with this kind of made up boyfriend from Chicago, who's not showing up for graduate or the last dance or whatever it was. Excuse me if I'm misremembering here, but it's kind of like, oh, something really major happened here. And it's kind of like, did everybody deal with it fully? And is it really necessary? I'm not sure. Maybe you have a thought on that. As far as Swiss cheese or a hole in the movie, I think that would be something I might take a, a look at, or I have taken a look at, obviously, a little bit deeper. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You would hope that maybe Damone and Stacy would address it at some point. That maybe is like, hey, I'm sorry I didn't take you. Here's at least the half of the money that I owed you. I'm sorry it's late. Just something, because... Yeah, we don't see the two of them again on screen for the rest of the movie. And yes, she had an abortion. That's a big deal. And it, it does seem like it's brushed aside. But I think also the way this movie is, that stuff does kind of seem not to trivialize it, but you just got to keep moving on. And I think that's what it's just saying. It's like she had an abortion. She's just got to keep moving on. And that's what she does. Agreed. And, you know, that's I think there is a perspective in this film, the way that it's approached and directed, et cetera, that this, again, is kind of slice of life. This is what these kids are dealing with. They have to process it and move on with their lives. It's because the next day is happening and the next thing is coming at you and you just got to take it as it comes and you deal with it. But this movie doesn't need to focus on the subject of abortion. That's not what this movie is by any stretch of the imagination. So that's fine. But it's still a weighty emotional subject. What I think I'm having a problem with a little bit, what I'm bumping up against a little bit is the combination of realism and with the comedy of the film. Because when you do deal with a, a weighty subject such as abortion and even sex at times, you know, it's like, oh, wow, this really is kind of a raw, honest, realistic movie in its portrayal. It's hitting home with some stuff here is how these kids are dealing with it. But then it's such a light comedic film. It's like, oh, am I just supposed to kind of take it as a comedy with a little bit of little realism sprinkled in? And so the the realism aspect is just throws me a little bit from time to time in this movie. Does that or does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I think also is that's just how life is. You could be having a good day and then all of a sudden you get some yeah. really bad news and it's just like, oh, shit, that sucks. But then you, you just got to keep moving on. And I think that's just what this movie does. It's it's the day to day. And fortunately, Stacy got herself in a situation where she got pregnant and her choice is to have an abortion and pretty much keeps it from everyone except for Linda and Damone. And she's just going to keep it a secret after that too. I mean, Brad finds out, but I mean, no one else like Mark doesn't even know. He just knows something happened between Damone and Stacy, but I don't think he knows Damone got her pregnant. Right. I don't think the school knows the extent of that, thankfully. And thankfully for Stacy's sake, right? they just know that he basically yeah, that Mike slept with her and ditched her and that Mike had basically screwed over his best friend because he was dating her. So I think it's done. She got the abortion. She's moving on. Let's just move on with the movie also. Yeah, agreed. But no, I get it too. It's tough because you, you would think that would be the whole point of the movie is dealing with this and the consequences and all that stuff. But it doesn't do that. I think that's what makes this movie so different from other high school movies of the time is it doesn't stick with that one subject. It's a, it's a whole bunch of other stuff that's just kind of thrown in. And you just keep going, all right, next day, next day, next month. Next. Life comes at you fast. Yep. Fast times. What do you got for uh, Swiss cheese or complaints, Bill Bannon? Yeah, so I'll talk about Stacy. also. It's just, 
the whole thing in the beginning is she wants a boyfriend. She wants to experience sex and she just makes herself way too easy. I mean, she sleeps with Ron on the first date. They don't even have a date. At least get a dinner out of it or something. Or the rule of three, go out them once or twice to see if you really like him. It's she sneaks out of the house. He picks her up on the corner and they go right to the point and do it. And then she has the date with Mark. At least she gets a dinner. And then she invites Mark back to her house. And then she tries to put the move on Mark and Mark is just so nervous. He just stops it before anything can happen. And then even with Damone, it's Damone tells Stacy, hey, Mark likes you. And she's like, well, I think I like you. Damone walks her home. They go into the pool room and then they have sex right away. I'm like, Stacy, slow down. I know you want to experience sex, but let the process work. Find out if you really like this guy. You don't have to just hop in bed with someone. You're 15 years old. So she's portrayed as such a cute, innocent. So sometimes I always think I kind of blame Linda because I'm like, I don't know if Linda's telling the truth about everything about her and her mystery Chicago boyfriend, mm-hmm. which is weird because I'm like, she's so beautiful. I'm like, she's not the type of person that has, you know, you, you know, you always had that friend. Oh, you have this girlfriend in Canada that <laughs> everybody had the girlfriend in Canada. Right. I'm sure everybody had that kind of friend. Uh, Linda doesn't have to make that stuff up. But right. I almost feel like she's making it up. So that so that makes Stacy feel pressured that she needs to catch up to Linda. And she's almost inadvertently putting her in those situations because she feels peer pressure. Linda's having sex all the time. She's having blowjobs with guys. So why am I not doing that? Maybe I should do that. You need to make your own choices, Stacy. But I'm wondering how much of the Linda influence affected her overall with this. And just like, just take your time. That's what I'm saying. She ends up with Mark at the end. Not saying that you had to. But even with Ron, just take your time. Just take your time. That's all. That was my complaint. She moved too fast for me. Totally agree. First of all, totally agree. It's jarring because she is portrayed in the very beginning as quite innocent. We know that she's young. We're like, oh boy, if she's 15, she's asking a 26-year-old out. This could be a bumpy road for her because it's going to get to a point where something's going to get come out or revealed and it's going to be embarrassing or her lack of experience or whatnot. And instead, she's off to the races, and she is then portrayed as being a little easy and a bit promiscuous, to be honest, and aggressive, for sure. And it's like, wow, we switched gears really quick with her character. So that was a little bit jarring. And that's, I was going to say, I keep saying I was going to save it for additional thoughts, and then I keep bringing it up now, and I will here, is the through line of the film because my one of my questions would would be, could you see this movie as just simply following her story mainly? Like it's her story. Like the movie is about her and her sexual journey throughout the film. And the other characters, such as a Mike Damone or a Spicoli or a Brad or a Linda, would be coming in and out to provide perspective and at times comic relief. But it's mainly about her trials and tribulations as a high school girl experiencing these things as they come and go. Cause it's, it just, it moves too fast and some of it's not addressed and we don't have enough context. Sometimes it feels as though there should have been a little bit more framework around these sex scenes. Meaning like what you said, specifically if Linda, if she's feeling pressure from Linda in a way like Linda's doing it unintentionally, but Stacy's taking it that way because she's a young girl and she's impressionable and she's looking up to Linda and she wants to be more like Linda or the other girls that dress like Pat Benatar. So that's why she's acting this way. Or maybe it's just that she wants to get through it. She just wants to get it over with. I just want to, you know, or she just wants to have sex 
and get some experience under her belt so that she can be a little bit more confident with her body. Maybe she's doing it for validation because she's extremely insecure, but uh, it could be a number of reasons why she's really putting herself out there and wanting to have sex. Or maybe she just had the realization that she loves sex and there's nothing wrong with that, that she owns it. You know, she's so comfortable with her body and she just enjoys sex. Nothing wrong with that. But we don't get much of that. All we, we any of those scenarios or storylines, we just get these scenes of her being aggressive and moving quickly. Like I said, she just moves fast. She just moves really fast. And she kind of handles it with maturity. She's surprisingly mature when she's kind of perceived or portrayed as being naive and innocent in the beginning. So it's a little, it's everything's changing and moving too fast with her character a little bit. So I would agree with that. Yeah. And and also on the other side, it does take two to tango. And Absolutely. Ron's kind of a dick too for, like I said, you, you're taking this girl out just basically just to have sex with her mm-hmm. and then just drop her because you get what you want it at least take the girl out not take her up to the point so there's two sides to it i don't want to think i'm just focused on the stacy side but you know you look at the three situations ron basically just went out with her just to have sex with her mark was just uncomfortable but then he totally bailed on her just because i just he he just got too nervous Mm -hmm. and then you know damone did the same thing dude you know your best friend liked her and yes, she's coming on a little strong there, but you could have stopped it. It goes both ways. A thousand percent. Absolutely. Here's a little complaint. The point, which should be like this romantic spot. Is it really just the dugout at the local ball field? Yeah, I wasn't sure what that is was that either. Point? <laughs> it wasn't that where all the kids go to make out and more. It wasn't until the second time I watched. I'm like, wait, the dugout is the baseball field. That's crazy. I wonder if the place is called the point. I don't know. You would think the point would be like a, a lookout point, right? Right. That's what I was expecting. Yeah. A little bit more remote where you look up at the stars, whatever. Anyway, what else you got for complaints, Bill Van? Do you think Damone's parents are liars? Because when Stacy calls Damone about the ride and then the mom says, oh, he's in the garage with his dad. And then you find mm-hmm. out that Damone lives in an apartment. I'm like, well, they don't have a garage. That's that was my question. So does the family go ahead? Sorry, I keep interrupting. No, no, no. no. I'm just. Keep going. You're right. It was like the mom just lied on the behalf of Damone. I mean, granted, the mom doesn't know what the situation is, but man, I mean, if the mom would ever find out, like, oh, I lied to a girl that was pregnant, and you're supposed to take her to get an abortion. I think I'd beat the shit out of my kid. No question. Yeah. Right. So my question with this is exactly where does Mike live? Either. A, he can't afford his own apartment as a high school kid by the money that he's made scalping tickets, which I highly doubt. Or B, his family lives in an apartment. Because earlier in the scene, one of your favorite scenes, I thought that clearly was Mike's room because he has this little mini bar set up with the Kahlua and the milk. Oh, yeah. So that might be Demone's. Mike's coming out of an apartment. But uh, maybe maybe it was simply, like you said, it's the garage. That's the mention of the garage. He's helping, Mike's helping his dad in the garage, but it could be the apartment garage, right? It could be. Don't need to dwell on it. It threw me off. Yeah, me too. All right, here's a mystery for me. I don't know if it's a complaint. It's just more of a mystery. I could probably say this for additional thoughts and questions. So we see Stacy working at Perry's Pizza and she's with a customer and she says to the customer, your order was $1.10 and here's your five cent change. How is that? There's no 15 cent piece. How is she giving him a five cents? That's driving me up the wall, Jason. 
I couldn't figure out why she would be giving him five cents back for an order that's a dollar ten. Because I would either give you a dollar, <laughs> a dollar and a quarter, yeah. so that'd be fifteen cent change. How am I getting five cents back from a dollar ten order? It's a stupid little line, throwaway no, line, but so it drives funny. me up the wall. So if it's a dollar ten, and let's say he gives her, yeah, it doesn't make sense. No, no, there's no way it adds she up. She should have said That's fifteen hilarious. cents. That's a good call. That's a good little nitpicky complaint, and it makes complete sense. It's a legitimate complaint. I know because I kind of mess. I miss what was happening next. I was trying to figure. I'm like. How the fuck is he getting five cents back? It's really funny, too, because she specifically says it. Like yes. If it weren't for the line that she says, and here is your five cents back. Correct. Which was awkward. And I specifically remember her saying that. And I was like, this seems like a forced line. Why would she? And here is your five cents back. Yep. It was weird. It's a weird moment. And now that you even. <laughs> so it had to be a dollar twenty. <laughs> right. But she said it's a dollar ten. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. There's. Yeah. Of oh, all yeah. the little stupid You're things right. that bother me, that just, I'm just trying. I was like, I maybe I just don't know math all of a sudden. I was like, maybe I'm just missing something on math. Where's the script supervisor on that? You know, what the hell? Yep. This movie's stupid. That's funny. Here's a complaint. I just don't think Linda giving Stacy blowjob lessons with a carrot in the middle of a crowded lunch cafeteria is a good idea. Maybe save that lesson for the privacy of anywhere else, <laughs> like mainly home, bedroom, anything, somewhere private, but not in the middle of the cafeteria right. at lunch. It, it could have been funny if they were doing it by the pool, and then that's when Damone and Mark show up mm-hmm. and they see that going on. Somewhere where you can be alone. Mm-hmm. But it is, I mean, it's kind of funny because you have the table full of guys that then applaud after the lesson has concluded, yes. sort of. It's like, Wow. That's pretty brazen. You're just going to just do this right in the middle of the cafeteria. You practice a blowjob on a carrot. Yeah. And yeah, man, Stacy gets real toothy with that carrot. Oh, yeah. Like, oof, be careful. I was thankful. Linda, like, it's almost under her breath. Linda's like, not so much teeth. Like, and I'm like, thank you. Thank you for throwing that in there. My God. <laughs> uh, hilarious. All right. Uh, my last complaint is it's the magical car. So... You know, Stacy's waiting to go for her ride for the abortion. And then she goes to run in the house to call Damone. And so she runs in front of the house. So we see the house. And then she comes back out. And then there's Brad pulling out of the driveway. I'm like, where the hell did Brad come from? Totally. It, it just it just appears. Yeah. I would have been okay if the, if the car had been there. And then she grabs Brad. But Brad's car came out of nowhere for that. So it's, it's a magical car. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's invisible mode. Maybe that's why he's got to work to pay for the invisible powers in the car. I don't know. It's part of the magic of the cruising vessel. That's true. The cruising vessel is special, man. Yeah, my my last complaint was actually, or maybe it's more of just a question for you. Do you think do you think Judge Reinhold was a little too old or has a little bit of an older presence than should have been for this role? It was in the back of my mind, like two years later, he's in Beverly Hills Cop. He was 24 when they shot this. Or around, like, close to it, close enough. Right. So that's not, like, way out of range. No. You know, we've seen films where the characters are much, you know, clearly older. I mean, just watch Beverly Hills 90210 or something, right? Right. That's the running joke. It's like, oh, there's a bunch of 30-somethings playing teenagers. So he's not, like, super old. There's just something about Judge Reinhold where it, it may be because he's taller. It's just his presence. He just kind of comes immediately in the beginning of the movie when he's just walking outside of the mall or walking through the mall or whatever, going to All-American Burger. It's like, 
this guy's in high school, even though he's clean shaven and he still has a little bit of a baby face for sure. Just like, I don't know if I buy that he's, or if he's a senior 17 or 18 years old. It didn't bother me enough that it took me out of the way. No, correct. I agree. Yeah. So I'm okay with it. Made me think though. All right. Moving on. Unless you had anything else for complaints. Nope, that's it. It's time for, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week? This week, our Hey, It's That Actor is Taylor Negron. He plays the pizza delivery person from Pizza Guy. He's in it oh so briefly, but I'm a fan of Taylor Negron. And this credit is not even on his personal IMDb page for some reason. He's on the Fast Times at Ridgemont High page, but he's not. On his, it's not even on his own personal page. Anywho, as for his acting career in the 80s, Taylor Negron had parts in Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, River's Edge, and Punchline. And one of my favorite roles of his would come later in 1991 in the much underrated, in my opinion, The Last Boy Scout, where he plays the number one henchman to the bad guy, uh, the character Milo, if you will. Love that movie. Love Taylor Negron. Anyway, he's got numerous appearances in movies, TV movies, TV shows from Friends to Nash Bridges to Curb Your Enthusiasm and everything in between. Just look at his filmography on IMDb. Uh, Some fun facts, a little bit of history. Uh, Taylor Negron was born Brad Steven Negron in Glendale, California. He attended UCLA, studied acting with Lee Strasberg, and studied comedy at a private seminar taught by Lucille Ball. He went on to join the cast of an improvisational comedy group whose ranks included talents like Robin Williams, Martin Short, and Betty Thomas. A little bit of trivia, as I mentioned, he played the role of pizza delivery guy three times, once here in Fast Times, and then in Biodome in 96, and Vamps in 2012. He appeared nine times, (laughs) nine times, on The Dating Game in the 1970s. How about that? Personally, I remember Taylor Negron as a great stand-up comedian. I just thought he was really funny. Just a really funny guy. You can look him up on YouTube and you'll find some of his uh, An Evening at the Improv clips and more. I recommend it. He had a very specific style. Unfortunately, Taylor Negron did pass away early 2015 uh, due to liver cancer at the young age of 57. And uh, Taylor Negron, he is our Hey, It's That Actor for this week. Yeah, we could probably do a special mini-sode on Hey, It's That Actor from this movie. There are so many people in it. Oh, God, yeah. Taylor is a good call. I always kind of remember him more from uh, Better Off Dead than anything else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really enjoyed his stand-up, too. I'm going to just interrupt real quick, Bill Bant, because I got to do this, man. I got to give a quick shout-out. I almost considered using this actress, Pamela Springsteen. She's Bruce Springsteen's sister. Yep. She plays one of the cheerleaders during the sort of half-assed rally, if oh, you will. Yeah. She's not the blonde with all the lines. She has a line or two. Uh, she's the brunette off to the side, the left side of the frame of the screen. But I just had to mention, because I looked her up, she plays the lead role of Angela in Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3. Yep, We're big fans of Sleepaway Camp on this podcast, but she takes over the lead role of Angela in those films. Yeah. She's like... Oh, man, Pamela Springsteen. It's crazy. For sure. 
All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Fast Times at Ridgemont High? All right, first-time director Amy Heckerling said she was seeking to make a comedy that was less structured than conventional ones and more like American Graffiti from 1973. So if you, this is a quote, if you woke up and found yourself living in the movie, you'd be happy. I wanted that kind of feel. All right, so we were just talking about Judge Reinhold, so here we go. Judge Reinhold was asked to play Brad because he was director Amy Heckerling's upstairs neighbor in Los Angeles. Heckerling also cast her ex-husband, David Brandt, and his real-life band, Reeves Nevo and The Cinch, as the band at the dance. And her ex-boyfriend, Beverly Hills Cop and Son of the Woman director Martin Brest, was the doctor on the field trip near the end of the film. The woman who pulls up to Brad's car and laughs at him while he's wearing his Captain Hook fish and chips uniform is Crow's then-girlfriend and ex-wife, Nancy Wilson, guitarist for the band Hark, which you had mentioned earlier. Man, so many people in this movie. The film is adapted from a book Cameron Crowe wrote after having spent a year at Claremont High School in San Diego, California. He went undercover to do research for his 1981 book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, A True Story about his observations of the high school and the students that he befriended there, including then-student Andy Rathbone, on whom the character Mark Rat Ratner was modeled. So the awkward sex scene in the pool house involving Jennifer and Robert originally earned the film an X rating because it featured full frontal male nudity. So the shot was changed, so it's actually more of a close-up of Robert, so you don't see his junk, so they can get the R rating. All right, don't need to see the junk. So we can see, we can see the boobs, but we can't see the junk. That's a double standard, right there. Right, no nether regions in this film. Tom Hanks was considered for the role of Brad Hamilton. Justine Bateman was offered the role of Linda Barrett, but she turned it down to star in Family Ties. Matthew Broderick was offered the role of Jeff Spicoli, but turned it down. Jodie Foster was considered for the role of Stacey Hamilton. And Jennifer Jason Leigh stated that she prepared for the role of Stacey by rereading her own high school diaries and letters, as well as taking a job at the Sherman Oaks Galleria Perry Pizza's restaurant for three weeks. And uh, yes, they did use the Sherman Oaks Galleria for the mall scenes. But the point I'm going to make here is how different... Would that iconic scene with Phoebe Cates been had it been Justine Bateman? Oh, yeah. I don't see that. Justine Bateman is an attractive woman. Right. But I don't know if she would have embodied that character differently. I don't know. Yeah. It's just unanswerable. Yeah, I, I don't see that. All right. So in um, Kevin Crow's book, Spicoli's dream sequence takes place in The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The scene was written and pitched to Carson, but he turned it down. Also, who turned it down? Murray Griffin, Tom Snyder, and David Letterman. And then the scene was then changed to have Stu Nathan interview Spicoli at the surfing competition. And if you recognize Stu Nathan, who does the interview, and like, where have I seen that guy before? He was usually the ring announcer in all the uh, Rocky movies. Ah, so I'm literally stepping all over my additional thoughts and questions. So we're probably going to breeze right through that category because one of my questions was at the beginning when we're introduced to Mr. Hand as the teacher of the history class. He hands out sheets of paper, which are the schedules for that history class. And we see all of the students almost in unison sniff the piece of paper, the schedule. They sniff the top of it and they sniff the bottom of it. And I'm watching this going, what in the hell are they doing? Why are they sniffing the pieces of paper? So 
Near the beginning, right after Mr. Han sends Spicoli to the office for being late to class, Mr. Han passes out the class schedule of quizzes. After the paper is passed out, the students put the page up to their noses and deeply inhale. This was a popular school ritual of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s as photocopying machines were very expensive, so ditto machines were used. The resulting copies did not get you high, but they smelled good. Yes, they did. We had one at our school. Yeah, every time. So you knew what they were doing. Oh, yeah. You saw that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I laughed. That's funny. Yeah, it's, a, it's, oh man, I wish I could describe what that smell was. It almost kind of smelled like a candy. And the ink huh. was uh, like a blue instead of your typical photocopy black. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. It's, especially if the teacher just like brought them fresh in out of the out of that machine. Oh, yeah. You would like pass it back and smell yours. Pass it back and smell yours. So, yeah, that was a thing. That's great. All right, so for my last one, so the inspiration for Mark the Rat Ratner uh, was, of course, based on a real-life person who went to Claremont High School, and the person's name was Andy Rathbone. And Andy Rathbone, you might know from the uh, writings of the many Four Dummies books about a computer programming, and the first one he did was on Windows. Do you have any of those dummy books? Yes. I don't know if I have one that was written by him, but that I think that's a fun fact. And, but yeah, for sure. I think I have, I had one regarding computers at some point when I first got my at home PC. What did I get? It was a Dell, Dell computer, you know, PC desktop. Anyway. Yeah. I've had, I've had them. They're great. Um, I'll just do one last one. Maybe I was going to talk about Sean Penn taking his role probably a little too seriously. <laughs> you can find fun, plenty of research on that, but he really does embody that stoner surfer character. But uh, I'll just go with this. Although Ron Johnson, the character, the stereo salesman, is portrayed as much older as Stacy, actor D.W. Brown is actually only seven months older than Jennifer Jason Lee. So it's like, dang. Yeah, that's what made me lot wonder if both of them were lying about their age. So maybe he was like 22 just to make him seem more cooler. A lot of lying. You saw that in the research too. That Nicholas Cage was lying. Oh yeah, he's literally lying. Get a, get a bigger part. Yep. Yeah, actually lying. Oh, you were talking about the. I yeah. see what you're saying. The characters lying about their ages, but then you had actors lying about their ages too. Yep. Time to move on to box office. So, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released on August 13th, 1982, in 498 theaters on an estimated budget of four and a half million dollars. It grossed around $27.1 million domestically. It debuted number seven at the box office and held that spot for another week. Two weeks later, the movie's movie ticket sales would increase 62% and it would move up to the number three spot at the box office. Fast Times at Ridgemount High would place no higher than three, but would stay in the top 10 for another six weeks. It would be the 25th highest grossing movie in the U.S. in 1982, just ahead of Tron. Moving on to reviews. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was not reviewed on Cisco and Ebert, but Roger did give the movie one out of four stars, stating this movie could have been a lot more fun if it hadn't chosen to confuse embarrassment with humor. The unnecessary detail with sexual functions isn't funny. It's distasteful. He did, however, praise stars Jennifer Jason Lee, Sean Penn, and Judge Reinhold for their performances. Leonard Malton gave it three out of four stars, stating... Funny, surprisingly honest, with a very appealing cast and a memorable performance by Penn. High energy feature debut for director Heckerling. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 78% and it has an IMDb rating of 7.1. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are additional thoughts and questions about Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Real quick, Bill Bant, if you had to choose... 
Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Dazed and Confused? What's your preference? Ooh, Fast Times. Me too. Dazed and Confused is great. Yes, it is. I don't know. It's a generational thing. And it's strange because Dazed and Confused, I think, takes place in 1976, yet was released 90s, 93. We actually did a, a sneak preview at, a, at college. Right, yeah. right. I think it's 93 is yeah. what I saw. Yeah. So Dazed and Confused comes out later, directed by Richard Linkletter, and then becomes a phenomenon, almost like an instant cult classic. Yeah. But there you go. That movie just focuses on one day. There, Yeah, sure. Last day of school. Hey, Bill, my nephew just started high school. Mm-hmm. After watching this, now your kids are, are younger. Correct. Did you, did you have any thoughts about your kids going to high school and the trials and tribulations they may face? It's just going to be so different from what you and I went through that I don't know what to expect. Maybe, maybe a better question would be like, what one piece of advice would you give your kids going into high school? And you have a, a boy and a girl. Right. Could be different for each. Um, just take your time. Just be smart. Have a good group of friends around you. Can actually trust. Yeah. Good call. Be true to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Just try to make the best of it. All right. Uh, what do you have, man? Some questions, thoughts? I thought this was kind of funny because there's a scene in the movie when I think they're taking the biology test and everybody's trying to cheat off of Mark. Yeah. What is like the worst cheating that you did in high school? Did you ever have to cheat on something in order to pass? Good question. I was a real goody two shoes, man. I'll be honest with you, man. I may have been the Mark character. As a matter of fact, I rarely cheated if ever. The closest I came to cheating was really just using cliff notes for like book reports. I mean, which is so like not exciting. Right. That's not sexy at all. When it comes all right, to let me ask you this then. Cheating, because there's some fun techniques we saw, like uh, methods of cheating in this movie. Oh, the girl like hikes her skirt and she's got her thigh is like covered with all the answers. Right. Or the guy has the answers written on little pieces of paper inside of his sunglasses. Some creative ways to cheat, but I, I never got that creative. But yeah, I definitely, because I was involved in a lot of extracurriculars and just felt like I was always short on time, that when it came to things where I, I personally, for whatever reason, felt were less important, like a book report or something, I would, yeah, do the cliff notes. So you never had then book. a friend like need you to cheat off of them or like you would help them? That yeah. asked you. Yeah. Right, right, right. No, I'm failing miserably. Wow. Tell me, tell me, what do you, what do you got for this? Okay. So in high school, trig. Oh, this yeah. teacher we had was terrible. It was like learning a different language. And no one no one understood what the hell was going on in this class. And luckily, the teacher would give out the same exact test every year. So one of the kids in our class had a copy of all those tests. So we would just literally memorize the test before we had to take it. And then it was just, you just intentionally got one or two wrong. So it looked like you didn't get perfect on every test. And that's the only reason right. that whole class passed. Like no one knew what the hell was going on. Wow. That's phenomenal. There was like one project we had to do outside. We had to do a presentation and I got lucky because I did my presentation on on gambling odds, which is probably the only topic that I think I would have been able to write about. And I got an A on that. So that was the only thing I kind of did on my own for that class. Everything else was based on I had to have copies of the test or I would have flunked. Wow. And I I was a good student. You know, I was I was in the yeah, like the top 15 percent of the class. But for that, even like the smart kids in our class still was like, I don't know what the hell he's teaching us. Right. Like no one could help each other. It happens. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I was like, thank God he gave out the same test every year. I wonder if, <laughs> I wonder how long that kept up until someone he caught on. Yeah, right. Like he was a nice guy. Oh, he was, he was a, a, like a funny guy, but he couldn't teach worth a mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's why good teachers sometimes are hard to come by or hard to find and uh, should be paid appropriately. Yeah. But yeah, that just reminded me why I was in. You know, the other reason why I wasn't involved in too much cheating, as far as I can re- remember, please, there's some of my high school friends out there that need to remind me of something specifically. Please chime in. Let me know. Let us know. But I also was in classes such as college prep physics with Mr. Boardman. Shout out to Mr. Boardman. The guy was a genius, one of the best teachers in the state of Illinois. And that stuff went way over my head, straight over my head. I needed a lot of help. But I was in some of those AP classes with fellow students that were also my friends. So that was my clique that I mostly hung out with. And they were either as smart as me or smarter. So they certainly didn't need to cheat on me. And I was close enough to their level that I didn't feel the need to cheat off of them. And they were also goody two shoes. (laughs) Yeah, that was the only class I struggled on. Usually I was always helping other students, but that was the one time I was like, I need help. I'm in trouble. The last comment I'm going to make or additional thought I'm going to present is just the, that female perspective. I appreciate Amy Heckerling directing this film and then going on to do Clueless in the 90s because we had mentioned when we did the Stand By Me pod asking, is there a like a grade school coming of age, junior high coming of age film that features an all-female cast that the ladies enjoy or the girls enjoy? And we've gotten some nice responses to that. So thank you very much, listeners. But yeah, thanks to Emmy Heckerling. There's and there's definitely high school coming of age movies that the female persuasion are huge fans of, and mm-hmm. Clueless is right up there, probably in the top. Oh, yeah. five as far as like definitely nineties. No, oh, definitely high school movies. So just giving a shout out to Amy Heckerling and the ladies out there that uh, these films that have a little bit better female perspective or stronger female presence and perspective. Yeah, I think that really helped with this one, to be honest, that you had a female behind the camera to do this. Yeah. Yeah, that's really what makes it work. All right. So it's time to move on to rating then. So on a scale of one to five tasty waves, what do you give Fast Times at Ridgemont High? I'm, you know, after doing this podcast with you, Bill Bant, I give you a lot of credit, man, because working it, it's like we're working it out in real time informing my own personal opinion of the film because this is the part of the whole point it's just fun to talk about movies with somebody because it can help shape you know just give you a little bit of an outside or objective opinion and uh, shape your own personal subjective opinion so I'm giving this three and a half really solid tasty waves I mean it's one of the first of its kind in my humble opinion as far as my exposure to these types of movies and I, yeah, just really appreciate the performance of Jennifer Jason Leigh and, and Robert Romanus, especially. What can you say about Sean Penn? He embodies the character. He just nails it. He kills it. He's hilarious every time he's on screen. He makes the movie so quotable. And I was surprisingly satisfied by the end of this movie. I didn't know where it was going or if it needed to go anywhere, but I was still satisfied at the end. And I always actually... I actually did kind of like enjoy the little epilogue at the end. I did not sure we needed to know what happened to Mr. Zargus, the biology teacher. <laughs> but, but <laughs> otherwise, I found, you know, when they did the little bit on Jeff Spicoli, of course, and how he saves Brooke Shields. Is it, does he save her from drowning, yes. but then blows the reward money? On Van Halen. Van Halen. Heck yeah. Uh, that's great. So this movie has some really hilarious moments. It is raw. It's got fantastic music. I mean, when the high school scenes start with Tom Petty's American Girl, we know we're in for a fun ride. It's a solid peek into the trials of high school existence. Maybe slightly unfocused, sure. Lacking some consequences, sure. 
And although I do agree with some of Roger Ebert's kind of harsher sentiments about the film, I think the movie is a fun romp. And it's just, it's entertaining overall. I'd heavily recommend getting the soundtrack. I'm ashamed to say I, I also do not have it. I need to own it. So I need to take my own advice, especially because as you see, even when the end credits play and you're like, oh my God, this is great. Oingo Boingo. There's Danny Elfman and Oingo Boingo doing their thing at the end of this movie. It's another reason to get the soundtrack. Three and a half tasty waves. So fun. A must watch. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. What about you, Bill Band? Yeah, I'm giving it four tasty waves. Nice. The acting is so strong in this movie. I like what they did with the story. It, it's not tied together. It really is just kind of, hey, this is how high school life is at that time. Watching this, I'm, I'm wondering if high school students of today would watch this, would enjoy this movie at all. They might find it boring or mm, right. whatnot. So that was always in the back of my mind. But if you are from the 80s and have not seen this movie in a long time and your focus is on the Phoebe Cates scene, there is so much more to this movie than that. And it's a great movie to go back and explore. Like I said, the two or three times I watched it to prepare for this, I really focused on a different character and just what their journey was and just found all the characters to be really interesting. We didn't even talk about Forrest Whitaker is in this very briefly. I always love going back to these movies to see where most of these actors started. And you cannot go through a scene without recognizing somebody from something, you know, you you mentioned Pamela Springsteen as one of the cheerleaders. Well, the other cheerleader, I can't remember the actress's name, but um, that's the girl from Night of the Comet. So it's just, it's just that. It's just like you just see all these people and so many other things. Um, that the nostalgia aspect of it is just great, and that's just what I love about it. So four tasty waves for me. Awesome. All right, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for spending your time with us and listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, we are heading to San Francisco, home of one Inspector Harry Callahan. We'll be discussing 1983's action thriller, Sudden Impact, starring Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke. Hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. What are you people on dope? Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 